2 Samuel 1 just began our new series in 2 Samuel with our book sermon last week. And we're going to cover all of Samuel 1 this week, so that'll be a good momentum starter here. This morning we were in Psalm 54 and 59 considering deeper David's proclamations about God's capacity to vindicate wrongs done against us and our privilege to forgive, to release, to acknowledge God's privilege, and to praise Him while we do it. Those two psalms reference events found much earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, all the way back, we understand, to before David's exile in 1 Samuel 19. And now, here we are. Saul is dead. And that having been described in 1 Samuel 31, David has been patiently waiting for God to vindicate him, patiently waiting for the kingdom that God promised would be his. He had several opportunities to kill Saul, but did not do it. And now the time of his exile has finally come to an end. We study 2 Samuel 1. For those online who perhaps started with the YouTube series or listening online in 2 Samuel, I would encourage you to go back and, and start at the beginning of 1 Samuel on the website, on our audio. We don't have all of it on video. But uh, we're going to be spending a, a good amount of time, particularly in these first couple of chapters, referencing quite a few things that happened in the past, right? Because it's just a continuing narrative. And yet, uh, we will still teach through it thoroughly. And I'll do my best for the sake of everybody, whether here or, or online, to reference back to the particular sermons that uh, are needful when, when it's appropriate. Our text opens today right where we left off in 1 Samuel 30 and 31. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 of 2 Samuel 1. Scriptures tell us, Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode two days in Ziklag, it came even to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head, and so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. So David and his men are two days removed from the slaughter of the Amalekites. We read about that in 1 Samuel 30. Uh, they probably had, a, it was probably at least a couple of days in that battle, chasing the Amalekites down, finding them, slaughtering them, returning from that battle. And then he had been two days in Ziklag by, at the point that we get to here, where a man comes to him. Remember, Ziklag had been burned with fire. But David and his men still went back to it, it would appear, and were there for two days. And David was doing all of that while the battle between the Philistines and the Israelites was going on. Two days later, a man comes out of the camp of Saul, the scriptures tell us, and his clothes are rent and earth is upon his head. The rending of clothes, the placement of dirt or of ashes upon one's head is a very common Near Eastern indication of extreme sorrow and mourning. We see it all the way back to the days of Job. And Job probably lived pre or about the time of Abraham. And he wasn't even a Hebrew. He wasn't even a Jew. But this is a Near Eastern custom. They would rend their clothes. They would shave their heads. They would put dirt or ashes upon their heads. They would sit, as we oftentimes hear it, in sackcloth and ashes. These were not expressions given by divine decree. This is not a, a divinely decreed expression of mourning, but simply a cultural expression, an expression of grief, much the same way that we wear black to a funeral today. It's not that we have to. It's not a divine decree that we wear black. It's just something that we do culturally. And when you know, if somebody comes to a funeral in white, you look at them and you say, hmm, uh, in the same way that if someone comes to a wedding in black, you look at them, I mean, unless it's a suit, but if they, if, you just look and say, well, is this a mourning occasion, right? Because black, that's kind of what that means. I remember one of the weddings I went to, I wore my black cowboy hat and I got chewed out. Because it wasn't, it was a black hat. You don't wear a black hat to a wedding. Well, that's the only one I've got. So it's the way it's got to be. I, I need to keep my head from burning. But um, expression of mourning. Clothes rent, dirt upon his head. 
When this man came out of the camp, the Bible says that he fell down upon the ground and he did obeisance. That word literally meaning an act of reverence. So he falls down and he reveres David. He knows who David is. It becomes immediately clear of this fact. He knows who David is. He knows David's relationship to Israel and he knows David's relationship to Saul. He, didn't, he wasn't going around telling everyone. He, he, he found David and he falls down at David's feet. And we continue in verses 3 and 4. The text tells us, And David said unto him, from whence comest thou? And he said unto him, that would be the man, the, the man from the camp, he says, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. And David said unto him, How went the matter? How did the battle go? I pray thee, tell me. And he answered, this is the other man again, that the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people also are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. David and this mourning man begin this conversation. David knows the battle has taken place. He finds that the man has come out of the camp of Israel. He inquires how the battle went. The man's response reflects what we considered in, in 1 Samuel 31, that the people fled. Many of them are dead. Saul and Jonathan are dead. He doesn't mention Saul's other sons, right? Saul had two other sons that died on the battlefield that day. He doesn't mention them. This would also indicate that this man knows exactly who he's talking to and why he's there, right? He, he didn't just mention Saul and, and all of his sons. He said, Saul and Jonathan, who I know is your best friend, effectively. Jonathan's dead. Saul is dead. He only mentions those that David would be directly concerned with. Now, obviously, this would have deeply troubled David. But, but he wanted to seek further proof. He needed to be sure of this. He didn't want to make any rash judgments or, or start making major decisions. Now, now think about this. Think about why. David is now going to, if, if Saul is dead, everything has changed for David, right? If Saul is dead, he's no longer fleeing. He's no longer, he no longer has the enemy of the king and, and, and these things going on. So, so things are about to dramatically change if this is true. But David wants proof. He says in verse 5, he said unto the young man that told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan his son be dead? A, a prudent man is never hasty to just accept hearsay. It doesn't matter what hearsay. A prudent man is not hasty to accept hearsay. He does his very best to validate the facts before he comes to a conclusion. So the young man says this in verses 6 through 10. He tells him a story. He says, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, I was, I was by chance on Mount Gilboa, this mount where all these people are dead. Behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me, and I answered, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said unto me, Stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me, for anguish has come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him, because I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head, and the bracelet that was upon his arm, and I have brought them hither unto my Lord. Now, as I read that, if some red flags went up during the reading of that, that's a good thing. Because if you read that account, that is not the account we read in 1 Samuel 31. That is not how it went, according to 1 Samuel 31. There are some definitive discrepancies between this man's account of Saul's death and the one that we would read about in 1 Samuel 31. Another good reason why we need to be careful sometimes with chapter breaks, even sometimes book breaks, right? Because if you just start in 2 Samuel and you don't have 1 Samuel context, you're not going to realize that there's something wrong with this. There's something wrong with what he's saying here. We'll talk about the differences in just a minute, but, but if there's discrepancies, you say, okay, pastor, well, which, which one is correct? Or is this a discrepancy in our Bibles? Well, anytime we come across a discrepancy, we always have to start with what we know. And what we know foundationally is that the Bible does not contradict itself, right? There is no error in our Bible. There might be translational issues. There might be, um, there might be print issues. But as far as the text is concerned, the preserved word of God, the Greek and the Hebrew, God has preserved them the way he wants them. And, and they are inerrant. We, we believe that. We trust that. 
The Greek and the Hebrew texts that we have today are exactly what God intends to communicate to us, and it's well translated into the English for our edification. So we, when we see something this blatant, right, this obvious, we, we know that there's something else going on. So if the text is not in error, then what is going on here? Well, we consider the account of 1 Samuel 31, and, and take, take note of this. 1 Samuel 31 is not written as from the mouth of a character. It's not quotation. It's, it's the writer of the book, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing down what happened. He's writing the history as the Holy Spirit inspired him. On the other hand, in 2 Samuel 1, the writer is quoting the, the man, right? So whether or not what the man said is, is true, the writer is writing what the man said. So if there's a discrepancy between one, which isn't quotations, it's, it's the Holy Spirit's inspiration, and the other, which is, a, is under, under Holy Spirit inspiration, is quoting a man, we would always favor the one that's not a quotation. We would always favor the one that seems to be divine commentary, that seems to be divine history, not the one that comes that, that's quoting from a man's mouth. I hope that makes sense. We can be confident that where these two accounts differ, they differ because this man came to David telling him lies. Changing how things actually happened. So what are the differences between these two accounts? Well, this man says that he just happened on Mount Gilboa. How do you happen upon a great battle, right? Between two huge armies. I was just out, you know, for my morning stroll. And there just happened to be people killing each other. And, oh, look, the king of Israel. No, probably not. Second, he says, Saul fell upon his spear. That he leaned upon his spear when he died. The literal word here in the Hebrew means lance. It's a poking instrument. A spear. Something that has a a pointy tip and then a long shaft. A poking instrument. But 1 Samuel 31, verse 4, if you go back and read it, says that Saul fell upon his sword. And in the Hebrew, this word literally means a cutting instrument. It might still have a point, but it has sharp sides for cutting, not just for poking. Two entirely different weapons. Entirely different weapons. This guy didn't get these confused. He didn't see a man fall on his sword and think, oh, that was a spear. Or see a man fall on a spear and say, oh, that might have been a sword. They're, they're different. They're obviously different. And this gives us the first indication that this man is lying. He then says that after falling upon his spear and it didn't kill him, Saul called this man over to him and asked him to kill Saul because he had not died by the spear. Again, we find nothing of this in 1 Samuel 31, do we? Rather, Saul asks, he's, he's wounded by the archers, right? And he asks his armor bearer to kill him. And his armor bearer says, I will not kill you. And so he falls upon his own sword. And then it says the armor bearer, seeing that his master was dead, fell upon his sword and they both died. And so Saul did die when he fell upon his his sword. That's what the inspired text tells us. That was narrative. That was written under inspiration of the Holy Spirit to tell us what happened. This is a man speaking to David and he's quoting, he's being quoted. This man is lying. So the man claims that he, recognizing there's no way Saul could have possibly lived, chooses rather to to show mercy upon the king and rather than let him get caught, this man says, I killed the king myself. He asked me to. He was doomed. There's no way he could live. I, I relented. I killed him. And just to prove to you that, that he's dead, here's his crown and here's his bracelet. And he brought the crown and the bracelet as proof to David of Saul's death. Now, the, the, the crown and the bracelet, there's no doubt that he actually had them. So what really happened here? He was an Amalekite slave. Probably his master died in the battle. He's now got some element of freedom. And he says, I'm going to cash in on this. Why would this man lie to David? Think about it with me. You're an Amalekite slave in Israel, right? So you have no rights. You're a slave. You're watching... All these people are dying. Your master dies. You can get away. There's a lot of confusion. All these people are dead. And you see the king of Israel die. 
He falls upon his sword. He dies. You know what has been going on between David and, and Saul. You're well aware that David will be the next king, that he's been anointed king, that David will, will plan to take the throne because he's been, all Israel talks about the fact that David's the next king. So you know this. You know that David's going to be the next king. You also know that Saul has tried to kill David on any number of occasions. So you assume that David will be pleased that Saul is dead. Now, what we know of David's character, this is a wrong assumption. But the Amalekite assumes this. This man will be so pleased that his enemy, the king, is dead, that now he can become king, that he doesn't have to flee anymore, that his life has been spared. He's going to be happy. So he alters the story in order to make himself David's hero. In order to make himself look good in David's eyes. So instead of just coming across a dead carcass of a king, he says, I slew the king. There's nothing that we could do for him at that point, but I slew him myself, thinking maybe I'll get rewarded for slaying the man that stood between David and the throne. Maybe I'll get rewarded for my virtue because uh, I, I'll make it sound virtuous, I'll make it sound good, but, but I'll still be the one who killed Saul. And then he grabs the... He, what really happens is he sees Saul's dead body, he grabs his bracelets, he grabs his crown, and he goes to David. Now David responds when he sees the proof of Saul's death. He responds with incredible sorrow, not joy. Look at what verses 11 and 12 say. Then David took hold on his clothes and he rent them. And likewise all the men that were with him. And they mourned and they wept and fasted until even or until the evening. For Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel. Because they were fallen by the sword. So that day until the evening, David and his men who were with him mourned, and, and it says that he mourned for Saul, for Jonathan, for the people of Israel, and for the house of Israel. They mourned because the battle was lost. They mourned because these men had died. Now, following the time of mourning, notice what David says beginning in verse 13. David said unto the young men that told him, so the young man's been sitting there waiting for his kudos. David says, Whence art thou? And he answered, I am the son of a stranger and a Malachite. David said unto him, How wast thou not afraid to stretch forth thine hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? That didn't go quite as planned, did it? Now we who have been reading in 1 Samuel for some time knows that David refused to touch Saul because he was the Lord's anointed. Told his men, Do not touch Saul because he's the Lord's anointed. We could have seen this coming. The Amalekite, though, probably not. And so now you can just see, you could probably see the Amalekite's eyes getting really big as he realizes that David is not happy with him here. David is very angry with him for killing Saul. So the scriptures tell us David called one of the young men and said, Go near and fall upon him. And he smote him that he died. And David said unto him, Thy blood be upon thy head, for thy mouth has testified against thee, saying, I have slain the Lord's anointed. Probably in the last minute there, he started saying, no, 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 that's not really how it happened. I just picked these off of a dead man. But David says, sorry, your mouth has testified to yourself that you're the one that killed the Lord's anointed. That means you get the death penalty. And the young men killed this man for his sin. Remember, when David's man Abishai offered to kill Saul for him, David's response in 1 Samuel 26, 9, David said to Abishai, destroy him not, for who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? David says there is no man that can get away from the guilt of killing God's chosen man. There's no man that can, can avoid that guilt. So he told Abishai, you may not touch him, I will not touch him. And when the Amalekite claimed to have killed Saul, David said, that's, that's the death penalty. So David regards this young man to be guilty of murdering the king. He allows the man to be, he has the man killed. The man who is likely expecting some reward, maybe his freedom, maybe some monetary gain, instead is killed. David exercising what he perceives to be God's divine decree upon the man who would take the life of the Lord's anointed. Now remember, 
as, as we continue, re- remember David's response here. The remainder of the chapter is, is a lamentation. It's a psalm written by David for Saul and Jonathan. And beginning, we see in verses 17 and 18, the, script, the scriptures tell us, And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan his son. Also, he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. Now, it's worth lo- noting that the lamentation is not simply taken up for Jonathan, is it? It's taken up for Saul and Jonathan. And Saul is even mentioned first here. David is giving Saul his due, giving him the respect that is due unto his name. We talked this morning about how David did not vindicate himself, even in Saul's death. David is not rejoicing over this man's death. Is he going to rejoice over God's vindication? Just justice, certainly. But, but this is a day of mourning, for Saul has died. Verse 18 is a little bit ambiguous. There are two prevailing theories concerning what this means, that David bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. If we take that just as it's translated, the idea is that David desired to have the, the children of Judah learn how to use a bow, like, like a bow and arrow, a bow. Um, that's, that's what the older theory is, and, and um, there's reasons to, that, that we could accept that theory. Um, many people say, well, at that point it seems as though the nation was more prevalent with the sling, and this is when David brought the bow back into to prevalence, seeing the damage that it did to the army, we need to learn the bow. However, there are some things that, that uh, don't commend themselves well to this theory. First, we know that the bow was used in Israel. Uh, remember when Jonathan uh, got into his first covenant with David and he took off his armor and he gave, he gave David everything that he had? One of the things that he gave to David was his bow. And it's specifically mentioned that he gave to David his bow. Remember when uh, Jonathan and David were communicating in the woods? And how did Jonathan communicate with David? Shooting that arrow, right? And where that arrow lands. Now, the thing is, that was all Benjamin, right? Uh, Saul and, and Jonathan were of the tribe of Benjamin, not of the tribe of Judah. So it could be that the tribe of Judah didn't get into the bow, and now David wants to teach the tribe of Judah the bow. That might be it. And that's where this, this idea comes from. That's where the King James translation comes from. As far back as 1 Samuel 2, however, when Hannah is rejoicing over Samuel's birth, and she's a Levite, when Hannah is rejoicing over Samuel's birth, she uses the bow as, as an example of strength. So we certainly don't see the bow to be something that is foreign to Israel at, at this time in history. Um, we know that, that the Benjamites were extremely skilled both with the sling and with the bow. That's Saul's brethren. Um, there's not a lot of reason, as we consider it, though, to, to assume that that's the case. The other theory, which seems to perhaps be more likely, and it's reflected this way in other translations, if you consult other translations, is that the actual name of this lamentation, remember how this morning we talked about Altaskith and how that might be the name of the song that David wanted his psalm to go to, and, and we talk about these various instruments, the, the name of the lamentation itself he might have titled The Bow. And that would perhaps make sense, right? That the, the arrow, the, the bow being the thing that killed Saul, the bow being the thing that won the battle, that David might have entitled his psalm, the bow. And so in that case, all the sons of Judah would have been charged with learning this lamentation and learning to, memorizing it and learning to sing it. It really could be either one. We don't have enough historical information to know one way or another, um, but, but this, that seems a little bit more likely considering how much the bows seem to be prevalent in, the military of, in, in Saul's military. Um, so the song, the text tells us, was written in the book of Jasher. The Hebrew word Jasher literally means straight or upright. It's referenced two times in the Bible. It's referenced here. And then it's also referenced in Joshua chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. Remember the time where Joshua's in the battle and he commands the sun and the moon to stand still. And the scriptures tell us that that the sun didn't move until the battle was over. And in that time, the scriptures tell us in verse 13 of Joshua 10 that 
it, perhaps Joshua's words, Joshua's song, Joshua's command, was written in the book of Jasher. So it would appear that this book of Jasher was a national songbook of sorts, written to record hymns, written to record odes, tales of national valor and strength. But we don't have it in our scriptures, and it has not been spared, which means it's not inspired literature. It's just tales and words and whatever the case may be. So, so that gives you a little context about the book of Jasher. Why don't we have the book of Jasher today? Because the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to. If he wanted us to, we'd have it, right? That's the power of God. So the psalm, the lamentation, begins in verse 19, and I'm going to read it for you. It says, The beauty of Israel is slain upon thy high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul as though he had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How are the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou wast slain in thine high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen? And the weapons of war perished. It's a beautiful lamentation. Highlights everything that was beautiful and honorable about Saul and Jonathan. And it's broken up into three sections, each beginning with the phrase, How art the mighty fallen? We see this phrase come up in verse 19, verse 25, and then to end the psalm in verse 27. So the first stanza, we see how are the mighty fallen in verse 19. And then from that point to verse 24, David extols Saul and Jonathan. He praises them, their bravery, their strength. He calls for all men to mourn the loss of these great men from off the earth. He speaks of their conquest and their capacity to war. He speaks of the beauty of their familial loyalty one to another, that they live loyal to each other in life. And they died loyal to one another in death. The second stanza is a contemplation beginning in verse 25 of Jonathan's might and the love that David had for his friend. He said he counts the love and loyalty that bound them as friends of greater strength than he had ever known in any love and loyalty with a woman. That they were, that he was closer to Jonathan than he was to anyone else on the earth. The third stanza is really just a repetition of the phrase. It it, it finishes out the psalm. How are the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? And as we consider the events of this first chapter, Saul is dead, David's response, and David's lamentation. I'd like us to think think about some lessons, three lessons this evening. From 2 Samuel 1. The title of the message was Wasted Potential. And that's what we're going to focus on. Point number one. Your sin can absolutely sabotage your spiritual potential. Your sin can sabotage your spiritual potential. As David sings of Saul, he sings of the very best of all that Saul was. You think about the way Saul lived his life and the way David sings of his death. And there, there seems to be a disparity, doesn't there? I mean, as we have thought about Saul, as we've considered Saul, as we've studied Saul, this man, I mean, he's a lunatic. The, the guy is, has gone mad with envy, mad with pride. I was talking to, to, to one this morning, and they were saying, how could Saul have been like that? Saul was so proud that literally his, proud, his pride drove him mad. 
And we see this madman. But David saw the early Saul. David preferred to think of Saul and his greatness. Not Saul who had been confused by sin. Not Saul who had been deceived by his own pride. But the Saul who was a mighty warrior for Israel. The Saul who was a man of valor. The Saul who was a cunning warrior. The Saul who was a man of great strength. The Saul who had been used by God to deliver them from the Amalekites. To deliver them from Agag. To deliver them from the Philistines. The, the Saul that had been used by God to unite the nation in the monarchy. The Saul that had been anointed by God. The Saul who had prophesied in God's name. We know that Saul was, was a great man in many respects. A handsome man. A man of stature. But more than that, he was a man anointed of the Lord. He was filled with the Spirit of God to lead his people. And David was going to respect him. Just as we're called by God to respect those in authority over us, David was going to respect his authority. David was going to see God behind the man. That God had chosen this man to lead. That God had chosen this man to, to do what he did. And therefore, Saul indeed, there was great beauty there. But you know, for all that Saul was all of these things, and we saw his great success early in his life, we studied it in 1 Samuel. It wasn't enough, was it? Saul's stature, his might, his valor, his, his capacity to war, he, he stood head and shoulders above anyone else in Israel, it wasn't enough, was it? Can you believe that? All of that, even the anointing of the Lord upon his ministry was not enough for spiritual success. All of Saul's natural abilities, not enough. All of Saul's knowledge of God, his position in Israel, his natural opportunities, it wasn't enough. All of Saul's spiritual advantages, anointed of the Lord, he had prophets that literally worked for him, right? That Samuel was like his mentor. Samuel would come anytime he asked him. Samuel said, you give me seven days. Anytime you need me, you give me seven days and I will be there. He could call the, the, the judge and the prophet of Israel at any time and, and utilize him to the fullest. But it wasn't enough. Because Saul had a will. And Saul chose his way over God's way. He chose to persist in his sin, trusting in the spiritual advantages and the physical advantages that he had to make up the difference for his choices. But it didn't, and it couldn't. He hoped that his relationship with Samuel would mean that he could do things that, that made sense to him, and, and even if they weren't quite God's way. Right? Samuel comes, and he hears the bleeding of sheep, and the lowing of oxen, and he sees King Agag, and he says, what have you done? And Samuel says, blessed be thou, I've obeyed the Lord. And when Samuel says, no, you haven't, Saul's attitude is almost kind of a, okay, well, I'll repent. Let's make this right. Let, let's, let's get this done. Let's get this over with. It's not enough, Saul. Your, your relationship with, with me, with Samuel, it's not enough. When Saul goes to inquire of the witch at En Gedi, tries to bring Samuel up just so that he can have some sort of blessing for, his, for his, his battle. Saul, it's not enough that you know Samuel. It's not enough that Samuel, the disembodied spirit of Samuel, is going to come and talk to you. That's not enough to find the blessing of God. He trusted that his good intentions were enough to make things work out, but they weren't because he had exercised his will against God. None of it worked because in the shadows, subverting every attempt to, to lead God's people was his own sin, was his unwillingness to obey. To us, Saul's sin was blatant. But as we look at the testimony of 1 Samuel, Saul didn't see it this way, did he? When Samuel rebuked him, he didn't understand the rebukes. He had convinced himself that he was doing enough. He was doing what he could while at the same time allowing his personal sin, his pride, his arrogance to undermine everything that God had, 
had enabled him to do. All of Saul's potential was sabotaged because he held on to the one thing that God needs in order to give us spiritual success. Saul held on to the one thing that God wants more than anything. Our will. Love is a choice. It has to be, doesn't it? You cannot compel love. You cannot compel love. You cannot compel obedience if we, if we define obedience properly. If obedience is doing what you're told, but not just doing what you're told, but when you're told to do it with a right heart attitude, you can't compel that, can you? You can compel compliance. You can compel loyalty, but you can't compel love, and you can't compel obedience. That's what God wanted, and that's what Saul wouldn't give. Ladies and gentlemen, our sin can absolutely sabotage our spiritual potential. It can undermine the lessons that God wants you to learn. It can confuse your perspective on truth. It can wreck your ability to discern right and wrong. You can, you can know this Bible backwards and forwards, but if you don't submit your will to God, if you don't submit yourself to Him in love, if you don't yield yourself to Him as the Scriptures asked us to do, it's not enough. You can, you can comply with your parents, but if your heart is a mess before God and you're not doing it for the right reasons, it's not enough. You can come to church, but if you haven't submitted your will, if you aren't, aren't doing what you do in love for God, it's not going to be enough. All throughout the Bible, we learn that sin brings forth death. This death that is sin. Far well before Saul died physically, was sabotaging his spiritual success. Blinding his eyes. Marring his path. Destroying his spiritual potential. God did great things through Saul. Imagine what God could have done through Saul if he had obeyed with his will, not just complied. Well, we don't have to imagine too far because we can see it in David's, in, in David's early ministry, in David's early reign. That's what God could have done through Saul. We might liken sin in the life of a believer to that athlete who every day runs 10 miles to keep himself in shape only to come back home, crack open a box of cookies and eat the whole thing. He has worked really hard to stay in shape. He is working hard, but he is sabotaging his own athletic potential with his choices. We might liken sin in the life of a believer to the college student who cheats his way through his degree program. All the while that he's working to show himself capable of doing a career... He's sabotaging his own career, his own knowledge of his career by cheating his way through. As Christians, we want to be used of God to do great things. And God wants to use you to do great things. We desire the natural blessings of, of righteous living and God wants to give you the natural blessings of righteous living. But when we allow our will to override God's will, when we allow sin to reign over an area of our lives, we are personally sabotaging the very capacity of God's Spirit to work in us and through us as He desires. So sin can sabotage our spiritual potential. But the next warning is perhaps even more severe. Number two, your sin can sabotage others' spiritual potential. Your sin can sabotage others' spiritual potential. Just briefly, we spoke in 1 Samuel 31, two weeks ago, about the death of Jonathan. Jonathan, that man who had single-handedly fought the Philistine garrison and won the battle, that first battle between Saul and the Philistines, because he, he was fully persuaded that God is not limited to save by many or by few. Jonathan, 
the man who knew that David was anointed to be king, and yet knowing that David is anointed to be king, still humbly rejoiced with David over his anointing, and longed for the day when David would supplant him as king, and Jonathan could stand at David's right hand. What a man of humility. A man who saw God's will as greater than his own. Jonathan was a man of inspiring faith. He submitted himself to his father because he was biblically obligated to do so. He was loyal to God's way through Saul, who was the anointed king, and God's way through David, who would be the king of the future. Now, Jonathan was not a perfect man. We've talked about some of his flaws. But he was a man of true faith. And as we step into 2 Samuel 1, Jonathan is dead. David is 30 years old when he begins to reign in Hebron. I don't know how old Jonathan was when he died. We might be able to find it from the scriptures. I didn't look into that. But that man's life was cut short. And his life was cut short by sin. Not his own sin, though, right? His life was cut short by the sin of his father, by the sin of his king. How many men on the battlefield that day fell as a result of Saul's sin? Because Saul, as the leader of the kingdom, would not bow his will to the holy God. And as we consider what the scriptures say about why Saul had to die, it was because of his sin. And because he consulted with the witch and the familiar spirit. How many men had to die because of Saul's poor choice? One of Israel's greatest spiritual leaders was lost. And little can we know what kind of positive influence Jonathan might have had on the nation if he had not died on that day. I believe Jonathan was doing right on that day in 1 Samuel 31 when he went out to battle with his father. After all, it w he was his king, his father. He was a leader of the military. It was his job. But it's a battle which shouldn't have been fought the way it was fought, right? It was a battle that should have been fought with the Lord. But Saul had rejected the Lord long ago. It was a battle that was made even worse by Saul's secret rendezvous with the witch of Endor, one which gave Saul his death sentence. And when the battle was over, Saul wasn't the only dead man. Jonathan was dead as well. Now, when Jonathan stands before the Lord in judgment, he will not be judged for his father's sin. The scriptures tell us that every man stands before God for his own sin, not for the sin of his father, not for the sin of his son, for his own sin. But in this life, our sin does affect others, doesn't it? In this life, our sinful choices have ripple effects on the lives of those who we lead, the lives of those who look up to us. The father or mother that has a problem, whatever the problem may be, an anger problem, a drinking problem, a gambling problem, a faith problem, can be the big things, it can be the little things, a lying problem, a cheating problem. Without question, you affect the lives of your children. Right? The leader with an authority issue or a pride issue or an anger issue without question affects the lives of those who follow him. Without question. Many a good man has gone to his death early because of the poor decisions of those who are in charge of him. Many a young child whose parents claim Christ have renounced the faith later in life because of the hypocrisy they've seen in their children. Many a young child has had to suffer the consequences of their parents' wrong choices, be they physical consequences or spiritual consequences. You are not responsible for the choices of others, but you do need to know that your choices affect others. And particularly as you are a leader, the, the more people God places you over, the more responsibility you have. Young people in this room, you might have younger siblings who would be affected by your choices, but, but by and large, your choices are still your own. But when you become an employee, 
and then maybe a manager or a supervisor, when you become a mom or a dad, if you become a deacon or a pastor or you lead uh, some ministry or whatever it might be, The more people you are given responsibility over, the more accountability you have before God. And the more of a possibility there is that your sin might ripple affect the lives of others. When we allow sin to have a place in our lives as leaders, in any capacity, we don't just run the risk of that sin sabotaging our own spiritual potential but we run the risk of that sin sabotaging the spiritual potential of those who follow, of those whom we influence. So your sin can sabotage your spiritual potential. Your sin can sabotage others' spiritual potential. But third and finally, this is is the smiling point, your obedience can do the same thing in reverse. It's not just your sin that can influence, that can, can, can sabotage spiritual potential and sabotage other spiritual potential. Your obedience can establish spiritual potential and help establish others in their spiritual potential. Your potential in Christ is limitless. Your potential to influence the lives of others, your potential to glorify God, your potential to make a difference for Him is limitless. God is not limited by your age, young people. God is not limited by your gender, men and women. God is not limited by your education. God is not limited by your intelligence. God is not limited by your health. One act of obedience can ring in the halls of heaven. One decision to submit your will to God, one decision to submit that area you've been fighting against, one decision to submit that sin that you've harbored in your life, one decision to obey can change your life and it can change the lives of those who look up to you, of those who follow you, or those who might follow you one day. Now, I have no capacity to make that decision for you, but... But for those of you that know my testimony, you know that that there was that moment for me when I was a sophomore in college. And it was a little thing, relatively speaking. I'm a computer guy, and I was a pervasive software pirater in, in high school and into the beginning of my college tenure. And then one day, after being brought to my knees by a, a, a roommate who was so terrible that he humbled me, he uh, just passed away not long ago, in fact, this roommate. Uh, but by being brought to my knees by how terrible of a roommate he was at the beginning, he, he, he figured himself out a little bit. I, I finally realized that here I am trying to get him to do right, but look at me. Here I am telling him he needs to do right, he needs to obey the rules, he needs to do things right. But look at me, with my little, my little closet of rebellion that I stick, I hang on to. How dare I worry about the moat in his eye when I've got a beam in my own? How dare I chew him out over his rebellion against authority when I'm doing the same thing? I'm just not being as obvious about it. So I took that entire folder of CDs, all my pirated games... And I threw him down the trash chute. A little thing. Just a decision. God, it's yours. I'm going to do right. I'm going to make the decision to do right. And it wasn't, it, the, the action wasn't the deal. The, the thing was my heart changed on that day. My, my, my will was submitted on that day. I finally gave God that vestige of my life that I said he couldn't have. I yielded it to him. And that started a chain of events that led to me submitting myself to full-time ministry. It led me to here. It led me to you. Now, I'm nowhere near a perfect man. I struggle with sin. But the chain of events which that decision began have led to many spiritual successes. 
not only in my lives, but in the lives of others as well. I've been able to influence people in my, through, through my life that I, I, if I'd have held on to that, I wouldn't be here. I, I, never would have been, I never would have been in those places. Now, could I have been used by God? Sure, but, but I would have continued to sabotage my own spiritual success by my will, my willful choice, to hang on to sin, to hang on to me. So I can only testify by experience that this is the case. Not only was I sabotaging my own spiritual success, but, but when I got it right, there was a spiritual blossoming that took place that I can only describe by, by saying it was glorious. David, unlike Saul, made those types of decisions. We'll see that in the beginning of 2 Samuel. His choice to honor Saul, both dead and alive. His choice to seek the Lord and to wait on God's timing. Imagine the influence that David's righteous choices, David's psalms, all that, all that David expresses in the word of God because he submitted himself to God. He submitted his will to God. Imagine the influence that he has had on generations of Christians. Because he submitted his will. That's the power of blessing. That's the power of obedience. That's the power of our submission of our will to God. And the neatest thing about it is that to whatever degree our sin sabotages our own potential and the potential of others, there's a boundless, exponentially higher degree of blessing when we submit, it's not like you get a little bit of sabotage or you get a little bit of, of, of disadvantage and then if I obey, I've got a little bit of advantage. It's like disadvantage, advantage, blessing, exceeding abundantly above all we could ask or think. Imagine how many men and women David led into righteousness simply by living an obedient life where he rooted sin out, he confessed it, and he didn't allow it to sabotage his spiritual potential. David lamented Saul and Jonathan on this day, and it was a lamentation of all the strength, all of the capability, all of the potential that these two men had that died on that day. Men whose lives had been twisted and short-circuited by sin. One man by doing the sin, the other man as an effect of the king's sin. May God help us not to be numbered among those whose spiritual lives have been sabotaged by sinful choices, but rather to be numbered among those whose spiritual lives have been blossomed by a submission of our will to the will of God. Let's pray together.